is cross Everybody knows the war is over Everybody knows the good guys lost Welcome to the Lifeboat Hour, Sunday, November 15. And before we get into the show tonight, I want to give a shout-out to all of our friends in Northern California, whom I had the delightful pleasure of meeting and sharing my public talks and workshops with recently in my tour of Sebastopol, Hayward, Chico, Grass Valley, and Nevada City. Thank you all so much for your support. And thanks to you, Peter Melton, who arranged these events, and thank you, Ivy Cohn of Extinction Radio, who shot a number of videos of our tour, and thanks to everyone who listens to and supports the Lifeboat Hour and my work. I also want to give you all a heads up on an online symposium that our team has created, which will air in January, entitled Moving Beyond Hope, Experiencing Our Deeper Humanity. You will be seeing announcements very soon on Facebook and on my website, and I'll be announcing this event here on the Lifeboat Hour probably next week. Now, this is not a symposium of information, but of community and inspiration as our guests, Derek Jensen, Dar Jamal, Jenea Donaldson, Andrew Harvey, Becca Martinson, Linda Bazell, and Dr. Mick Collins talk to us from their hearts, not their heads about how they're responding to the global crisis. And speaking of Andrew Harvey, he'll be my guest next Friday right here on the Lifeboat Hour. But tonight we have a very special guest who is returning to the Lifeboat Hour, and we're going to get right into our conversation with him. I'm talking about Charles Eisenstein, who is the author of The Ascent of Humanity, Sacred Economics, and The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know as Possible. Charles graduated from Yale University in 1989 with a degree in mathematics and philosophy. He's lived in Taiwan, where he worked as a translator. He's taught at Goddard College and at Penn State University. Charles currently lives with his wife and family in Asheville, North Carolina. Um, And he may be contacted at his website, which is charleseisenstein.net. And I'll just spell it out for you. The last name is E-I-S-E-N-S-T-E-I-N, charleseisenstein.net. Now, tonight, uh, I'm going to be asking Charles about a very exciting upcoming online course that he'll be facilitating called Masculinity, A New Story. So, welcome to the Lifeboat Hour, Charles. Hey, Carolyn. It's good to be back. Yeah, really. Uh, I've missed you, and I've also been following your work. You're a tireless writer of essays, and I'm going to ask you tonight about several of them that you've written this year or in 2014, because I'd like to highlight the aspects of your thinking and living in the world that may have changed since you were on the show in January of this year. Sure. So before I get into some of the essays, uh, I want to take some time to hear more about you, uh, more from you about a theme that I asked you to speak about the last time you were on the Lifeboat Hour. Namely, your perception of our global crisis is a kind of planetary initiation or planetary rite of passage. Um, I certainly lay out this theme in almost every workshop that I offer, and I've also written about it in depth in my last three books. I consider it one of the most, if not the most, important lens through which we can view our planetary predicament, and certainly the one that makes the most sense to me, although there are many, many, many ways to look at this. So please take plenty of time to share your perspective on this. Yeah, um, that's certainly for me, it's a, it's a more, um, <clears throat> it's a more 
um, empowering way to look at it than as uh, just a, you know, crash right. uh, into oblivion right. uh, that is purposeless. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it just, you know, our, our situation bears so many resemblances to a coming-of-age initiation that I just can't ignore it, you know. Right. And, and as I, like, lately I've actually been um, looking into initiation a bit more and discovering even more of these parallels. One of them is that in many initiations, there's a moment where you think you're going to die. Right. You think it's all over. Uh, your your world is falling apart. And, and, and it could just be that you're... Um, identity is falling apart and you don't think you're actually going to die, but it does in some sense seem like the end of the world. But often you'll be put in a situation where you think you're going to die. Right. Uh, And wow, I mean, we're really in that situation. Now, what you don't know, perhaps, in an initiation is um, is that facing something beyond what you knew and beyond what you thought you could handle brings forth qualities that you didn't know you had yes and that's why it's 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 a transition into a larger or more mature self and i think that is already happening uh for example i'm thinking of of um, really creative people who are finding solutions to some of the ecological damage uh, finding ways to heal let's say some of the ecological damage that has been wrought in the last few centuries that are um, were not even on the radar screen. They weren't. They weren't. They didn't even fall into the category of where to. They didn't even. Yeah, they weren't even found where people would have thought to look from the kind of technological uh, force nature to do what we want perspective. Uh, but, you know, so people like, you know, Paul Stamets or Alan Savory or, or people who are um, healing landscapes. I met an incredible guy um, who works with water and water retention landscapes uh, last month. Uh, and, and so this kind of creativity, these kind of capacities, um, they're being called forth. And, and in their absence, without those... Uh, new technologies. I'll use technology in a very broad sense because it, it almost doesn't quite fit into the category of what we would call high technology or advanced technology. A lot of these are very simple and, and they come from or they, they, they have as their starting point listening to nature or listening to the land, listening to the water rather than coming in with I already know what I need to know about water or soil right. or weather, and I'm going to impose my knowledge onto that. And, and, and so that's, that's, I guess I'm kind of straying off into another topic here, but that's uh, another reason why I, I, bring, I want to bring the dimension of the feminine and the masculine relationship into it, um, where, we're, where the, the masculine energy is now realizing we've got to start listening. 
Yeah, and uh, you know, as we as we consider this notion of rite of passage, coming of age, um, the two things that I, that I see, and, and one of which you've mentioned, is that in this brush with death, and there's always a brush with death in any kind of initiation ceremony. And and I know you've talked with indigenous elders, as I have, and um, there's a point in which you do believe that you're going to die, but what mm-hmm. dies is the ego. What dies is the kind of consciousness that you brought to the situation. Yeah. And the second thing that an initiation brings forth is your gifts, because in that rite of passage, you discover gifts that you didn't really realize you have, and, of course, the elders are there to help you with that. So, you know, those are two huge parallels that I see with what we're experiencing right now. And and I I absolutely believe that a whole bunch of this is going to be about the transformation of our consciousness of masculine and feminine. So I'm I'm really glad to hear you talk about this. Yeah. You know, the, the ego, you know, what would that be on a collective level? What is the collective ego? Um, I think that it's, well, if the, if the personal ego is perhaps something about one's um, uh, perception of oneself as separate, as a separate individual, right. then the collective ego would be our collective perception of ourselves as separate from nature, right. from the environment. I mean, even these words to the extent that they exclude human beings, these words already indicate our um, collective ego perspective. And, and that's exactly what's falling apart now. You know, it's, it's, we can no longer believe without strenuous efforts at self-delusion that the fate of the rest of the planet is going to be, you know, that, that we're immune to the fate of the rest of the planet. Absolutely. And uh, in relation to the masculine and feminine, um, you wrote a wonderful essay earlier this year entitled The Eco-Sexual Awakening. And in it you say that, quote, the lover does not say, I care about you because without you who would do my laundry? Love is for who the beloved is in and of themselves. To have a beloved then, one must see their isness. And you say that our ideology has, has blinded us to the beingness of the planet and to, to most of what lives in it and on it. And to love the earth, we have to see it as a subject, not an object. So mm-hmm. objectification of women, some say, is a, is a prerequisite for rape, for pillage. The same must be true of the planet, you say. And I would love it if you would expand on this theme and riff away on it. <laughs> yeah. Mm. It's almost taken for granted that um, the world outside of humans has less of less of the qualities of a self than we humans have, less of of intelligence or consciousness, purpose, desire, feeling, sentience, awareness, um, and and we kind of set up this hierarchy with. Human beings, as far as we know, at the top, the most conscious and therefore the most valuable, worthy of respect beings. And then underneath us are the, maybe the, are the animals, which have maybe some dim sentience, you know, and have the capacity to suffer 
um, but they're not as important as humans. And then underneath them are the plants, perhaps. Uh, and then beneath them would be what we call inanimate objects, uh, water, rocks, mountains, um, wind, the sun, and so forth. Well, one thing you might notice about that hierarchy is it says the more like we are, the more, the more, the more similar to us that something is, the more worthy it is of respect, the more alive it is. So it's very anthropocentric. And it seems even if you, you know, so if you talk about respecting nature, uh, honoring nature, the kind of scientifically oriented environmentalist will say, well, that's a nice poetic sentiment. That's a nice metaphor. But really, it's about more being more rational in how we, and there's kind of a schizophrenia there, you know, because on the one hand, it's, it's like, let's be practical here. It's, it's about um, more cleverly deploying natural resources and more intelligently exploiting nature so that we don't generate um, consequences that harm ourselves. So we have to switch out of fossil fuels, you know, or something like that. But it's not coming from a place of, of nature and everything in nature um, being worthy in its own right of respect, of honoring. Because that would be like, you know, imagine if, 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 if I introduce myself to you, hi, Carolyn, this is, this is me, and this is my teddy bear, uh, Bart, and he needs to go to bed right now, so I'm going to have to end this interview because he needs a nap, uh, and he's hungry right now, and so on, and, and he's going to be angry if I don't take care of him. Like, you're going to name that as anthropomorphic projection. You know, I'm projecting <laughs> human qualities onto what is really just a stuffed animal. It's right. just a, you know, a bunch of fluff. And so the same, by the same token, um, if we project or if we ascribe uh, intelligence or sacredness or beingness onto the wind, and we say the wind is listening, or onto the water, the water is speaking to us, and we say, no, 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 that's not a metaphor. That's for real. It really is speaking to us if we only learn to listen. If we affirm that, from the scientific materialist standpoint, it really sounds like anthropomorphic projection, uh, a fantasy. Um, to, to take that on face value is a huge revolution because it no longer puts human beings at the center or at the apex of a hierarchy of being. But I think that nothing less than that will be a deep enough revolution. I don't think we're going to change very much if we're just coming from um, a place of, of more cleverly deploying our resources. It's the, the problem is that we see them as resources, see them as fundamentally here for us. And, and I mean, how would you like it if I said, well, I'm going to treat you as a resource. Right. How, can you, how, can, how can I benefit from you? And, oh, well, I better be careful not to piss you off too much because then it'll come back to, to haunt me. So I'm going to at least pretend to be nice to you, but I'm still right. manipulating you. And, and, and on some level, we know that in the end, that's going to come back to bite me. Mm-hmm. Any way that we, we don't treat somebody as a full human being, as with, with respect, it's going to generate karma. Um, harm is going to come from it. 
The same is true in our relationship to nature. Well, thank you so much for that. Uh, I, I totally resonate with what you're saying. Um, now, my favorite book in your literary repertoire, Charles, is still The Ascent of Humanity. <laughs> mm. uh, I come back to it time and time again. But I think my second favorite is Sacred Economics. And earlier this year, you wrote Don't Owe, Won't Pay, Everything You've Been Told About Debt is Wrong, which was reprinted in Yes Magazine. And I actually that, wrote it for Yes Magazine, yeah. You wrote it for them. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, in that article, you write that, quote, the moral associations of making good on one's debts are still with us today, informing the logic of austerity as well as the legal code. A good country or a good person is supposed to make every effort to repay debts. Accordingly, if a country like Jamaica or Greece or a municipality like Baltimore or Detroit has insufficient revenue to make its debt payments, it is morally compelled to privatize public assets, slash pensions and salaries, liquidate natural resources, and cut public services so that it can use the savings to pay creditors. Such a prescription takes for granted the legitimacy of debts, unquote. So talk to us for a while about sacred economics and how don't owe, won't pay is connected with the notion of sacred economics and the gift economy. (laughs) Well, that's a big question. Yeah, well. (laughs) I'll just plunge into it a little bit, I guess. Um, Mm -hmm. You have big answers, Charles. (laughs) Yeah. Don't owe, won't pay. I love that. I love that slogan. It because it's such a deep repudiation of the, of the basic legitimacy of our whole financial system. Because uh, legally speaking, well, you do owe. You know, there it is in black and white. There's the, uh, you know, uh, cardholder agreement that you signed. You know, there is the uh, contract that you're, or you're, the, the treaty or the agreement that you're, government uh, agreed to. So how can you say you don't owe? So the, the, the slogan actually, it, what it's getting at is that the very conditions under which that agreement was entered into are fraudulent or immoral or, or illegitimate somehow. Because it's not like you really have a choice. In fact, increasingly you have less and less of a choice. Most people have less and less of a choice um, about whether to enter into debt. Uh, it's becoming harder and harder to avoid it right. and still participate in society. Uh, now, of course, when, when you see through, um, like for, I, mean, I guess I'm really thinking in terms of student debt right now mm-hmm. and the near impossibility of getting a degree without going into debt. Now, if you... <laughs> if you question the uh, utility of such a degree, of a college degree, then maybe you can be free again. But it's not easy. Uh, The pressures that are brought to bear, you know, you're going to be a failure in life if you don't get a university diploma. Your your income is going to be whatever percent less than someone without one, without, you know, with with a degree. I mean, it's, it's, um, this kind of narrative immerses us. So anyway, basically, we live in a system that is set up so that you have to go into debt. And this isn't only a matter of, you know, racism and imperialism and um, nefarious 
elites forcing people into debt or tricking them into debt. The problem is even deeper than that. It's a systemic constitutional, you could say, problem um, that's built into the nature of the money system itself. It's always necessary for, for, for money to be created. There has to be a debt. Money is, that's how money is created in our system. It's, as I'm sure that most of your listeners know, it's created. Um, central bank money is, is created by the purchase of government securities or other securities nowadays, um, but, you know, essentially through the purchase of debt. Right. And, and consumer money is, again, lent into existence by commercial banks. And every one of those loans comes along with more debt than the value of the loan. So there's always more debt than there is money, which creates uh, a compulsion for constant growth. So the, the, um, so once we're cast into that system, as we all are in a monetized society, debt is inevitable for the majority. So I, to me, don't owe, won't pay gets to that level too. It questions, do we have to have, is it fair to be cast into a system where unless you're one of the lucky or the privileged, you're going to be your whole life a debt slave. Is that even fair? Is that right? Do we have to accept that? And, uh, and it's mostly an unconscious rebe rebellion at this point, but I think more and more people are questioning that. And that's, that's where sacred economics comes in, you know, which is basically my attempt to describe an economic system that... Uh, that upholds and supports that which is sacred to us or that which is becoming sacred to us. The old, in a way, the old system did that too um, to the extent that growth was sacred to us, that, you know, the ascent of humanity to, to rise to the uh, ownership of the world uh, to convert everything into product and property. That was sacred to us. That was our defining myth. And we had a money system that was completely aligned with that ambition. Today, that is no longer sacred to us as we see its tragic consequences. And what is becoming sacred to us now is the healing of nature, the healing of injustice. But we're still stuck with a money system that does the opposite. So, you know, the, the book is a, a description of what would a money system look like that was aligned with ecological and social well-being. And I think that the um, leverage point, perhaps, to make this transition will be the unpayable debts, because as long as we try to maintain them, life becomes more and more unlivable. And at each crisis point, we have a choice. Do we double down? Do we add on to the pile of debt? Do we, you know, make, do we lend more money to the debtors in order that they can keep paying for a little while, uh, provided that they cut back on their well-being, you know, the, that they um, enact austerity 
on a personal or uh, national level. That's one choice. The other choice is, do we just let go of the whole thing and cancel the debts um, and build a, um, a different kind of system? And that, that's it's not actually, well, that's a bit of a simplification. But, um, yeah, that's the big, that's the overall scheme of it. Well, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty excited about what we've started to see this week in terms of more protests happening in college campuses over student debt and, and students actually saying, we want free college education. Um, mm-hmm. A completely, you know, revolutionary idea in, in the state of economics that we're in. Um, what do you, do you have some thoughts about that? Do you have any sense? Yeah, of- you know, it, it's, I think it's telling that that is a revolutionary idea because mm-hmm. 40 or 50 years ago, that was almost universally seen as a, um obvious idea. And in other countries, it's an obvious idea. <laughs> yeah, to this day. Yeah. Although even in other countries, it's being eroded as well. Right. In the U.K. and, and in Canada, um, the system of, of free or very, very cheap um, public higher education is... is, is um, is crumbling, but but yeah, it's, it seems like it should be a, a pretty obvious idea. And, and you know, there are those who think that maybe there are those who think that you know it should be subjected to market forces, and that's a good thing. And then there are those who think, well, that would be nice. That would be nice if it were free, but that's very idealistic. We, there's no way we can afford that anymore. Maybe in the '60s we could afford it, but we certainly can't afford it now. And then, so I would say, well, why not? <laughs> Why, why do we take it for granted that we are a poorer society than we were in the 1960s when no project seemed too great for us to undertake? Mm. What has happened? Like, I mean, you can look at the kind of financial reasons why we're poorer, but, but underneath that, have, have our machines stopped working? Have, uh, has our you know, per capita productivity gone down? Have we forgotten our skills? Has technology reversed itself and, and we're no longer developing technology? You know, like the, these fundamental building blocks of wealth are still there. Um, have seeds forgotten how to grow? Has the sun, sun shop stopped shining? Have people forgotten how to work? Um, no, none of these things are true. So why should we be incapable today of doing what was, seemed inevitable in the 1960s, what has fled us? If not anything material, what has fled us? And and it's a question. I, I mean, I could you know give some ideas why, but but I think it's something that we have to at least start asking. Well, part of my answer is what has fled us is the sacred, and it's time for us to take a little musical break in the middle of the lifeboat hour today. So uh, we're going to listen now to. Um, uh, a song called Adimaeus, which uh, you may be familiar with from the movie Avatar. It comes from the Songs of Sanctuary. This is sung by Inya. This is from the soundtrack of the movie Avatar, Adimaeus. Let's listen and enjoy this beautiful piece of music.
that was Inya singing Ademeos from the soundtrack of the movie Avatar, and this is the Lifeboat Hour. I'm your host, Carolyn Baker, and I'm talking tonight with author, activist, and philosopher Charles Eisenstein. You'll find all of his wonderful books and articles at his website, charleseisenstein.net. Well, Charles, uh, you've also written a beautiful essay on money and the divine masculine. We were talking about the masculine a moment ago. Um, Here's a quote from it that really hooked my heart. You say, quote, the divine masculine wants to make love to the world. It wants to carry and protect what is beautiful. It wants to explore new territories and play beyond the edge of old boundaries. It wants to put its gifts in service with, not domination of, the divine feminine, unquote. Now, some people have trouble with the words masculine and feminine. I don't because I'm a student of archetypal psychology and have been for many years, but I'm wondering if you'd elaborate on these two concepts in the context of money and relationships. Uh, okay. Um, yeah, maybe uh, sometimes I'm, I've gotten into the habit of issuing some kind of disclaimer before I bandy about the concepts of masculine and feminine. Right. Um, there's a whole postmodern critique of it, um, you know, that basically says that they're a culturally constructed binary that perpetuates the uh, the patriarchal ideology from which they came, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I'm, I'm more with you that, that these are not um, cultural constructions but that they are um, more than human and energies, archetypal energies that get uh, transmitted through culture and take on a unique form in any culture. So the form that they take on in our culture, our the dominant culture, um, one of one of the expressions of it is is um, economic. Is economic. Uh, so. Today, our money system has become unhinged um, and untethered, I would say, from uh, real wealth. Um, Certainly, aesthetic wealth, um, emotional wealth, spiritual wealth, but even more and more from material wealth. And this, this... and, and if the money realm, you know, it's it's all about the numbers. It's about abstraction. Um, it's very much in the head. And not that, you know, we should never be in the head and, or deal with abstractions, but when they become completely dissociated from the heart, then damage inevitably results. So... To, to be in service, be, we have to um, be connected and to be able to listen. So many, so I guess like one one way that this shows up um, for many men is that the this masculine energy, and not not just for men too, but it could be women who are acting from their um, masculine side. Um, this energy that should go toward service, service to life, uh, and these capacities 
to manipulate abstractions, for example, that should be very closely wedded to service to life. They've, they've lost that connection, and they spin off into this kind of self-reinforcing world of money or world of technology, too, where we're building cool stuff just because it's cool. We're doing it just because we can, and forgetting that this all needs to be in service. And, in fact, if it's not in service, we'll, we'll end up killing ourselves. Um, so I, I hope I'm, I'm not being too vague here, but uh, this reunion between um, spirit and matter mirrors the reunion between money and um, real wealth and also between these masculine capacities and the feminine ground. All of, it's all part of the same reunion. It is indeed, and I suspect you're going to be talking about this in your symposium that begins on November 18th. It's an online course, I believe, called Masculinity, A New Story. Would you tell us about that? Yeah. Um, I'm not really – I was calling it a course for a while, but a course implies uh, – well-defined learning goals and deliverables and, and it's all <laughs> right. packaged up and, right. and, you know, and the person teaching the course should be an expert. On right. It. Well, <laughs> none of those things apply. It's, it's much more of a learning journey or an, uh, an inquiry. Mm-hmm. And I've, 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 uh, I mean, it kind of has the format of a course. It's got eight or 10 recorded sessions and eight or 10 live sessions in between with these guests that I've, discovered in my travels and in my work um the guests much more than i am are are uh you know carry some real wisdom here mm. and i've just kind of brought them together into this um series uh so that's basically what it, and then there's you know ways to integrate it there's a discussion forum and things like that um but i'm not pretending that that this is going to necessarily um, change you. I believe, though, that, that, that it will be powerful for a lot of people. Um, and it's part of my own exploration right now as, as I've, um, you know, I'm just kind of feeling out what, what my next thing <clears throat> is going to be. Um, well, can you I, tell us? Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about the new story of masculinity? I'm, I'm very curious. Oh, yeah. About that. <laughs> well, that's that's you know that we had a story of masculinity right. that that I'm not sure you could say that it was working really well, but at least we were pretty sure of it. You know, like mm-hmm. if you uh, if you asked what is it to be a man, how does that look like? How do I do man? How do I do masculine? Our culture offered an answer to that, and. That answer is not very appealing and hasn't been for at least 40 years. It's, it's been um, falling apart. And as this transition often goes, the old story falls apart. We enter a space between stories. And then from that space, from that emptiness, from that void, a new story can emerge. So I feel like culturally we've been in the space between stories as far as masculinity goes for a long time now um no longer embracing the old um, not knowing what the new is exploring our inner feminine 
um, exploring the obliteration of all binaries, and maybe this isn't even a useful concept. Um, but now I think, um, so I guess I'm kind of drawing on an emerging new story of masculinity that could be traced back maybe to Robert Bly and Moore and Gillette and some of these early um, pioneers of the men's movement um, that, that is offering a new or maybe a next story of what it is to be masculine, what masculinity is in a way that feels that, that we can resonate with, that feels like something we want to embrace. Um, that's, that's the basic motivation of the course because I think like I crave that. And I think many other men do as well. Um, and women too, you know, to, to like, you know, there's, I mean, women have an inner masculine as well. And that seeks expression and seeks healthy expression. And if it has unhealthy expression, you get, you know, Margaret Thatcher, um, somebody right. who is, who is kind of role playing the old masculinity. Yeah, I've been uh, I've been kind of a student of all of this for many many years as a former Jungian therapist, and um, had the privilege and pleasure of working with a lot of of these guys that you just mentioned. You know, in the in the formation of the first men's movement in the '90s when I was living in yeah. California, um, and and also just realizing, being very clear that you know the women's movement was a wonderful thing. But what we didn't really work with in that was the, you know, developing the inner masculine in a way that would not just kind of uh, reinvent or reassume patriarchy. Mm -hmm. um, and so then if we don't deal with that, we do get the Margaret Thatchers or we get women who, who just, you know, oppress themselves by saying, well, I can have it all, you know, I can have right. the career, I can have the kids, I can have this, I can have that. Um, and, and then in that process, you know, separation uh, is fostered and we lose touch with the earth, with our bodies, with, with all mm -hmm. of these things that, that you and I have been talking about. So I'm very glad that you're doing this um, learning journey, as you call it. Um, I think yeah. this is very exciting, and it'll be really exciting to find out what comes from this in terms of this new story for men. I'm very excited about that. Yeah. Um, there's people out there doing incredible work on this that um, I'm looking forward to kind of bringing into the conversation. Wonderful. Well, I've got a couple of personal questions as we come down toward the end of the show. First of all, what is your deepest passion in this moment? What do you desire more than anything for the Earth and the Earth community? Uh, you know, I have various ways I answer that question that sound pretty good. <laughs> um, sometimes I'll say I, I, I'm working for a civilization that is oriented toward beauty rather than height, mm. rather than dominance, rather than efficiency. Um, 
you know, to 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 serve the to serve life's next unfolding, to serve the dream of the land that wants that which wants to be born. Um, specifically, I guess I'm really kind of in a space between stories myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I just got an email from someone saying, you know, Charles, Sacred Economics was a great book. You know, and then, but now you've departed from that, and that's the most important leverage point right now. Why don't you, you know, get your act together and, you know, get back on it, you know? It's so important now. And, like, I can understand his logic, but I just kind of got, um, I got to the point where, where it felt like I was beginning to kind of rehash the same ideas, and there's so much else that I'm interested in. You know, I'm interested in... in in water, I'm interested in ritual and and the creation of reality through ritual and through story, uh, and and really changing. You know, how how does a mythology change, really? How, and how do we contribute to that? And how can I contribute to the to changing the mythology of our civilization? Um, and and but then I think, well, you know, is that just kind of this intellectual escape? from doing real nuts and bolts action on the ground. You know, like, like I imagine sometimes a conversation with, you know, someone who is, you know, human trafficked, you know, or who has watched their children starve to death in front of them. They're saying, well, while that was happening, what were you doing, Charles? Uh, so that's always alive in me as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and perhaps it's, it triggers wounds of you know not being enough and so on. Um, I guess all this is just to say that uh, many of us, no matter how beautiful our work, are going through an intense inner process that includes phases of you know futility and self-doubt and and. Um, um, you know, making wrong choices or choices that seemed wrong, regretting them. Um, we're in new territory. And the only way to find the right path is to take the wrong path sometimes. And I guess, yeah, I mean, because that's where I am, I'm, I'm interested in the psychodynamics of that as well. Well, on that note, uh, what current projects are you focused on right now uh, besides the online journey, learning journey? Well, I just I just uh, went through a move. Uh, move of, uh, we moved from Pennsylvania to North Carolina. That's been consuming me a lot. And I do a podcast as well. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and I've been writing articles and stuff, but I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I've been holding back mm. Um but I think a kind of sabbatical is coming, is upcoming where I'm going to dive deep into something again and write a book. Even the last book, More Beautiful World, was, it wasn't like the other two that required years of research, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't so, such a deep plunge. It was more, um, it, was, it was kind of putting down on paper the, the conversations and thoughts and, and the speaking I've been doing. But I think, um, you know, I've been out there 
speaking a lot and, and being really public um, and giving a lot from what I had um, received over the last 10 or 20 years. And now I feel like I need to dip back into the well again before I have more to offer that isn't, you know, I don't want to be one of these idea celebrities, you know, mm-hmm. that, that kind of, I mean, I could do it. I could probably rework the same ideas uh, without ever reading a book again for the next 20 years and get speaking invitations and, and by all outward appearances, I would be a success. And I might tell myself I was a success. But um, I would have that feeling of being a fraud if I did that. And I think, so, so yeah, like I can't really say, oh, this, here's my next big exciting project. My next big exciting project, I think, is going to be to go inward and touch again on the source of of all of my work and all of our work, which yeah. ultimately doesn't come from ourselves. Yeah, well, that is a big, exciting project, and um, I really, I really respect and admire you for knowing that that's what you need and being willing to go there. It's rare in our culture when people say, "I need to dive deep again before I come out and produce something else." So, well, our culture doesn't encourage it. You know, our culture has the deck stacked against us if we want to do exactly. that. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So good for you. And uh, I'll, I'll look forward to whatever comes forth from that inner excavation that you're going to be doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it might be a while before I'm back on the show because I just don't want to come on the show and, you know, rehash what I've said already. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, you are certainly welcome here anytime. And I look forward to when you'll be back with all of that treasure trove that you're going to go discover. Um, Again, folks, you can contact Charles and read his works at charleseisenstein.net. You can listen to his podcast, and you can uh, become a member of his uh, online learning journey, as he calls it, Masculinity, the New Story. Charles, thank you so much for returning to the Lifeboat Hour. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Carolyn. It's my pleasure. Yeah, and so everyone listening, join us again next week when my dear friend Andrew Harvey and I will be talking about many things, including my new book, Dark Gold, The Human Shadow and the Global Crisis. Thanks for being here. We'll see you again next week. The rich get rich, that's how it goes. Everybody knows. Everybody knows that the boat is leaking.